Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. If you will turn there in your Bibles or on your device, have it in front of you in some way. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first thing that we need to know about this text is, in connection with this word, therefore, that Peter himself is summoning the Christian to live in a way that is consistent with what has already been said. You can go back to the beginning of verse 3, which begins a very long sentence. Verses 3 through 12 is one long run on sentence in Greek. So we must respond to all that God has done and all that He has promised to do in Christ. So that's why he says, therefore, it's the big shift to his first encouragement saying, here's what you ought to do. Everything else he said has just been indicative. This is what is the case. And now he shifts. Here's what you ought to do with this therefore. So let me summarize it in ways that uh, is longer than what Peter himself says in verses 3 through 12, but in ways that make sense and connects the dots for us, uh, drawing on the sermons that we've had up to this point. So he begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if, and if, if we're going to respond to the gospel, we need to have these things in our minds. It can't just be looking at the event of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We must draw on all that God has done and look to that future promise. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because in His overflowing mercy in ways that we are even now only beginning to understand and fathom, He has done the impossible and created new spiritual life in us. By His saving will, He has so radically changed us who are in Christ that the only words fit to describe it is being born again, created anew. Everything is different. And at the core, the very essential attribute of this new life that we now have, this this new life that we've been introduced to, this manner of living that we've been given, is that it is characterized by hope. But not a component of wishful thinking. That's sometimes what people mean when they think about hope. Uh, No, this hope that we've been born again into is a living hope. It is alive and it animates us for life and gives us zeal. And all of this, of course, is accomplished on the basis and power of God at work through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God did not let His Holy One see corruption. And it is not a mere emotional hope that the believer has. There is a way to be hopeful in life that is essentially trying to force yourself to feel a certain way about your circumstances. Just trying to see the silver lining in everything. Or just be hopeful and hopeful. Zippity-doo-dah. But this hope that the Lord has created in us is grounded. It is grounded on the promise of God to bring to pass all that He has said He will do. To bring us into our eternal, pure, and glorious inheritance. 
And this inheritance is none other than the full unfolding and completion of having Christ as our own. That which is being kept in heaven for you is none other than Christ Himself. And we have this grand inheritance because we are in Him. This is the foundation of our hope. And this inheritance is made ours through faith. And it is not as though the Lord just waits in heaven biding His time until He brings all of this to a close and brings us into our inheritance. No, He is active by His Spirit and His general providence to guard us and protect us from ourselves and from the enemy, from temptations to sin, and especially against the temptation to fail to obtain the grace of God. He's active. He is guarding us by His own power. It is God's power through and through. By His power, He raised Christ from the dead. By His power, He recreated us. He birthed us again. And now, by His power, He is guarding us all the way until we reach home safely. And the way He is guarding us is by working faith in us. It's important to remember that even though the believer even now enjoys immense blessing, we're we're saved in a sense now. We receive the, the first fruits, the fullness of this salvation, and in some ways the real beginning of this salvation is to be revealed on the last day. You haven't been saved fully yet. Or, to say it in a better way, you haven't been saved nearly enough. And what God will do when He sends the Christ is save you to the uttermost. And these truths give us great joy. Even though we endure trials now, and we'll endure trials until that final day, the Lord works these necessary, grievous trials in our lives with loving an indomitable will. And that will is nothing less than to purify our hope in such a way that it will result in praise and glory and honor for the Lord Himself and for all those who have loved His appearing. And while we wait, what grows in us through faith is a deeper and more profound love of the Lord Jesus, even though we have not seen Him with our physical eyes, the eyes of our hearts behold Him and love of Him grows as we wait for the full unfolding, the completion of all that He's said He will do. And it's all through faith. And even though we do not now see the Lord Jesus with the eyes in our heads, yet with the eyes of our hearts, while we see Him in that way, we are brought to a kind of rejoicing, a kind of happiness in the Lord, a deep and powerful Uh, inexpressible joy in the Lord. And as we rejoice in the Lord in this way, we gain, even now in some sense, what is or will be the grand goal of all this faith and all this hope and all this trust and all this believing salvation. We are assured by virtue of this joy developing in us that God will in fact do what He said He will do. And He will save the very essential us, your soul, through the day of His wrath. And as we bask in the glory of all this faith, all this salvation, we should note that it was not something altogether new with the coming of Jesus. 
It is true that this salvation dawned with the coming of our Messiah, but just as the sun is there before the dawn of a new day, so this plan of salvation, this working of God through Jesus Christ was always there and being revealed to the prophets of old as the Spirit of Christ even in them was revealing these things and indicating that the Messiah would come and suffer and that there would be subsequent glories. They saw it through the lens of the sufferings of Christ. These things that they saw, these things that they longed to see more of, the very things that you and I now enjoy, are the things into which even angels long to look. Their joy and their happiness is fully realized in seeing the mighty work of God on your behalf and mine in the outworking of our salvation in Christ. That is what we may call a full picture gospel. That is verses 3 through 12 in summary fashion or in comment. And now we are, as brothers and sisters in Christ, living the life in between. We have life between two bookends, if you will. The one bookend is all that God has done, all that we have just said, all that we've just summarized and revisited in verses 3 through 12. So that's one And it includes his promises about what he's going to do. And the second bookend is the complete fulfillment of all of that. All of it brought to fruition at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which gives us clarity as to why he's saying this right here in verse 13. Therefore, right? So he's established what has already happened, what God has done, the sure deposit that he's given us. And then therefore, in your time, in between these two events, do a few things. Live a certain way as you wait for the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And might I just say, before we get into what he tells us to do in light of the return of Christ, that you, believer, brother and sister in Christ, must have this as a sure foundation of your soul. If the return of Christ isn't a big deal in your mind, in the way you structure your life, I don't know how you function in life. I don't know how it's possible to get up in the morning and get after it for the sake of the kingdom of God unless you have a sure conviction, a grasp of the return of Christ. None of this makes sense. None of this is worth it unless he's coming back. And if you haven't come to that place in your walk with Christ yet, where you really feel that tension, where unless this is all going to come to an end and Christ stands on the earth and my eyes see my Redeemer in my flesh, then the Lord has yet to bring you to that point. Pray fervently that He would come and work in your heart so as to treasure and gaze upon His promises coming to fruition at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. And to speak in such a way, even in this culture, makes you seem like a crazy person. It's much more appealing to talk about love and grace and kindness and community service and all these things that are fine and great and we'll talk about them. But it takes a different flavor if the reason that we love, the reason we have unity, the reason we get after it in the community is because the King is returning. That's how we inform our lives. We reverse engineer, if you will, our lives from the sure reality of the return of Christ. There should be no event, no happening in your life that is more sure than the return of Christ. It is more sure than your death. Think about that. 
We think of death as the great inevitability, but there will be those alive when Christ returns. It is a more sure thing than anything you think of. It is more sure than the rising of the sun tomorrow. So what does life look like in between these two great bookends? Peter places the Christian and the church together with them in this stage of life in between. He does this, I don't, think he, I don't think he does this to make us feel like a people in tension, right? The, the phrase already, not yet is popular, and that, that's fine as far as it goes. But I don't think he's giving us a sense of paradox that we just always have to live in tension. He's placing our lives squarely between these two fixed realities of God's activity in Christ and promises of what he will do and the return of Christ to give us a clear line to tell us exactly what it is we're supposed to be doing and how we're to live. The big idea or question is this. Because of the glory of what God has done and the inevitability of what He has promised to do, how should we then live? If you're not running that question through your mind, occasionally at least, you need to begin to do so. Because that's the only way to live a life pleasing to the Lord. That your life would make sense between what God has done in Christ and promised to do and the eventual revelation of Jesus Christ on the last day. And it is important to admit and allow that we often need to ask that question. There are many ways to live life that fit nicely with one of those points, particularly the first one. You just get one bookend, as we've seen recently with this Christmas season. You can focus a lot on the first event, the first bookend, and just try to live consistently with some themes of kindness and goodness and goodwill toward men, but with no eager expectation of this all getting folded up and the heavens melting as they burn. You can live a moral life without any reference to the return of Christ. You can be respectable in the community. You can run for office. You can be a good church member and have no reference or give a rip about the return of Christ. My fear is that a vast number, perhaps even a landslide majority of professing Christians the world over live a kind of life that makes very little sense in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And it is my fear that even many of us who claim to know these things and work to make our life make sense in light of that day, yet regress occasionally, become lazy occasionally, in exerting the will and desire to make this manner of life the case. Because it just seems, from the outside looking in, just exhausting. So the situation that Peter is writing to, the people that he's writing to, is no different. This is not a modern problem. It is not because it's been 2,000 years since the first advent of our Lord that this is a problem. Living life in a lazy, lackadaisical approach, not in view of the coming of Christ, it's a human problem. His readers were at risk of this too. We need to be exhorted. We need to realign our priorities and to think differently in order to live a life in a manner worthy of the Lord. And before he tells us what to do explicitly, he gives us two mindsets to pursue. Two mindsets to pursue. And he teaches us 
about hope. We'll spend the rest of our time this morning examining these three things. He gives us two mindsets, and then he teaches us about what to do with our hope. The first mindset that the Apostle Peter gives us is what I am calling zeal. You can look at it very clearly. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Literally, here is how it would sound. Girding up the loins of your understanding. Or girding up the loins of your mind. Put it in modern vernacular. Put your big boy pants on in your brain. Theologically, we might say this. A zealous Godward readiness. Zealous Godward readiness. And it's put in contrast, I think, to mental or attitudinal lethargy, half-heartedness, slothfulness. The posture of, it's fine. Manana. Whatever. Meh. Or, or, or a mind that is so interested in what's going on inside it that it fails to pay attention to what's going on outside of it. There is zeal to this mindset that Peter wants us to to gird up the loins of our minds. So here's a few things to think about this. In order to live a life that makes sense in light of what God has done and that makes sense in light of what He has promised to do, the first thing you need is a mindset of readiness. A well-trained mind that focuses on the right things. A mind that is not easily distracted. A mind that is not given to frivolous pursuits and fancies. A mind that comes to church ready to get to the bottom of things in the Word and in the lives of your brothers and sisters instead of your own needs or wanting to be the center of attention. A mind that is aggressive to accomplish the right things and to see the right things happen. A mind that is always on the offensive to take every thought, every situation, every encounter, every conversation captive to the knowledge of Christ. But some of these things that we've been saying in connection with this type of mind that we're to have are really the fruits of a mind prepared for action. So the real question we need, though, is how do we prepare our minds in this way? How do we gird up the loins of our minds? Number one, I think you need to understand the situation. Understand the situation. Time is short. It is the last hour. We are in the last days. However you want to slice it up in the way it's all going to get wrapped up, we are in the last hour. We don't have enough time. Do you believe that? Does the way you spend your days reflect that? That we don't have enough time. Also, in understanding the situation, we need to know that the enemy is God of this world. And there are people under his power. Paul exhorts the believers in Ephesus, make the best use of the time. And he could have just stopped right there and not said anything else because of his authority as an apostle. But he tells us exactly why we should make the best use of the time. And that is because the days are evil. And that's something that I don't need to prove to you, but I think if we just watch the news, you get a perception that things are not nearly as evil as they are. Because the flashing lights and what draws our attention shows us one form of evil in the world, and really the problem is the whole world lies under the power of the enemy. 
Also understand the situation in that it is Christianity. It is following the Lord Jesus, our Messiah, not a luxury cruise as you wait until the day that Jesus takes you home. It's not even a battleship, right? In this analogy, you know, it's Christianity, not a cruise ship. It's not even a battleship because there's days at seas where you don't encounter the enemy. To use Jesus' words, though, we are sheep among wolves every day. And to use Peter's imagery, we are sheep being hunted by a lion every day. You feel that? Also, in preparing our minds for action, we need to understand the risks. Understand the risks. Jesus says many will fall away. Paul says the love of many will grow cold. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible to restore these who have apostatized in this particular way. It's impossible to restore them to repentance. Paul says to the Galatians that it's possible that even they could have believed in vain. Listen, I know that we should have joy in the Lord. I'm not trying to make you feel sad, okay? But we cannot be flippant and blasé fair like the battle is already over and all that is left to do is to rest and relax and wait for the last day. Paul says of himself that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his kinsmen that they would know the Lord. Does your mind reflect anything like that? Have you ever come to a place where where your mind has been so keenly focused on the things that really matter that you've allowed yourself to feel that degree of sorrow for the salvation of the lost? And then he says at the same time that he's abounding in joy while he has sorrow and and unceasing anguish. So you have to be willing to be a walking contradiction as a Christian. But consider the mind of Christ. As we, as we read, he's a, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that some of the intensity of his experience while he sojourned among us was that he saw the real spiritual need and devastation around him. But he was always ready, always prepared. You find no conversation in the life of Jesus recorded by the evangelist that doesn't have some agenda to it to help bring people closer to the truth. He turns everything into an experience of discipleship value. So, understand the situation, understand the risk, understand your weakness. And This is all under the heading of how do we prepare our minds for action. You need to understand your weakness. And I do not mean weakness generally as a human, though that would apply too. We're all sinful, we all have the flesh still dwelling in us in some way, and we are drawn off sides and follow vain pursuits. But I mean your own weaknesses, your individual weaknesses. You need to know the ways that you, you yourself, are often taken off your game, as it were. And if you don't know the things that are in your life that usually take you off of that readied mind, ask your spouse or a close friend. Each of us have a handful or a boatload of things and patterns and mindsets that derail good progress toward a prepared mind. Like the dog that cries squirrel. We have all these good intentions, all these plans to be diligent about the things that really matter, and then 
Something shiny pops up and we follow it like a fish. In short, what distracts you from a mind fixated on what matters most? Number four, this is all, again, how to prepare your mind. Understand your role. There are two traps to avoid, two errors to stay away from. Number one is, what can I do in the face of such a difficult situation? This kind of takes ourselves off the hook from having a prepared mind and coming at it with aggression and zeal for the Lord. It's like, well, what can I do? I can't move the needle on anything. The second trap to avoid is, well, the Lord's sovereign. He will take care of it anyway. Just to back off and let it all work out. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. Both are addressed in understanding the way that God has planned to bring all His sons and daughters safely home to glory is through His adopted sons and daughters being more and more like their Savior Jesus towards one another. Think of it this way. Question. How will God bring about all of His saving purposes? Answer. By moving His people to do His will. That's how it's going to happen. There's no other way. Are you thinking and behaving in a way that makes sense in light of the fact that you, dear brother and sister, are part of God's plan to bring your brothers and sisters safely into their eternal inheritance? What privilege, what gravity of responsibility, what, what meaning is then forced into every moment of your life, especially as you interact here when we gather as a church, that you are part of God's plan to make it happen. And lastly, under how do we pursue a prepared mind is to understand the reward. Understand the reward. This is just fascinating. From the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you understand the amount of payoff? And I feel very comfortable using that word because Paul uses the investment mindset when he talks about his life and how he chooses to live his life. He expects payback from the Lord. This he will receive back from the Lord, right? That's Ephesians 6, 7 through 8. Here it is in full. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And I think there is a general hesitancy to operate in the reward mindset, and that excuses us from having zeal and a readied mind. If you really believed that in some way your joy in the hereafter was somehow dependent and rested on your willingness to invest your life into the lives of other believers, I think it would make things different. There is real reward out there to be gained, and the indication is that it's an eternal reward. Like I don't know how to quantify these things. You can't quantify eternity. But if you even just give a cup of cold water to someone who is a believer, because they're a believer, you will by no means lose your reward. Jesus himself is going to guarantee that you receive payback for even the smallest measure of kindness exercised out of faith towards him. You operate that way. 
And you see how the return of Jesus Christ puts that all into context. Unless that's going to happen, a life lived for the eternal reward makes no sense. And you'll just live the way that you live, seeking good from others, doing good to others, and just kind of functioning in a Christian style of karma so that you have a good life. But not only, are we to have a, not only are we to have a mind prepared for action, we are to have a mind that is characterized by sobriety. Sobriety, it means being sober. So he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. It's one word in Greek. It means, you know, metaphorically something like being vigilant or being calm versus being tossed about perhaps, or versus being anxious and always fretting and going around from thing to thing, uh, versus silly or flippant. Here's a biblical way to put it from Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Wake up. We know categorically, I think, what the difference is between being sober and being drunk. You've either seen it in person or you've seen it in a show or a movie. And that attitude, that that pattern of behavior is clear, I think, in, in our minds. But many of us may not know that there are ways to be intoxicated, to lack sobriety, and never touch a drop of alcohol ever. Consider this. What is drunkenness? What, what makes it wrong? When an alien substance, in most cases alcohol, enters your system or enters your brain and alters your thinking enough to the point where holiness becomes more difficult. You lose self-control and you don't value things rightly. Avoiding temptation becomes harder and pursuing wickedness becomes evil. It just removes inhibitions perhaps. And so it's an alien substance altering your brain to gravitate towards what the flesh once. So, it is because it makes temptations to sin easier and holiness harder. And here's the point. You can be fully in control of your own actions, not intoxicated at all, a blood alcohol level of zero. And you can also not give a rip whether your actions are honoring to the Lord or make sense in light of Christ's return. Because your mind is intoxicated by other, more respectable stimulants. What's helpful about this statement that Peter gives us, that we need to be sober-minded. He's telling us that we need, to, we need to make sure that there's nothing that is entering our minds, that is altering our behavior and our perception such that we don't value things rightly. It shows that there's... This is so helpful. I really want you to see this. Being sober-minded indicates that it's not some level of skill or a level of achievement or a level of spiritual maturity that you've got to eventually get to after years and years and years of training. You just need to make sure that nothing is entering in to take over. Have a sober mind. Understand this, believer. It is when we allow other things, it could be anything, Come in as an outside force and take up residence in your mind and to make temptations to sin easier and desires to live righteously more difficult. Could be anything. 
So ask yourself this question. What is your spiritual or mental alcohol addiction? What causes you to lack sobriety in mind and heart? Maybe it's the desire to be liked. This is what Jesus says. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's a rhetorical question. You can't. You can't believe if you want to be liked more than you desire the glory of God. It could be some game or show or other pleasure that is your spiritual or mental alcohol. How much time are you thinking about it? And what attitudes and preferences is it generating as in your heart as you focus on these things? Have you given welcome to an unwelcomed guest in your mind? It could be a good desire. It could be a pursuit of things that are actually good and good gifts and would be from God, but they can so dominate your mind and your heart that they control your thoughts and emotions. It could be the desire to no longer be single. It could be the desire to get a better job. It could be the desire to eat better meat. Whatever it is, if it comes in and controls your mind and dominates your actions, and you know people, you've met people who have been so dominated by one pursuit in their life, that you can't look at that and call that sin, but they were so focused on it that it made them neglect other responsibilities and other ways of being faithful to the Lord that they needed to do. It could also be an ungodly fear. Ungodly fear can dominate your mind. It can just take over. You're no longer in in the real sense of being in control. You have no self-control and your life is just led along like a dog on a leash because of that ungodly fear. The solution is to embrace fear of God. By embracing a greater fear, it will expel that unwelcomed guest from your mind. There are many others, a particular sin, general self-centeredness, pursuit of comfort. It's big up here. Maybe an unwillingness to be sad. Maybe we, are unso- maybe we are so unwilling to be sad that we're unwilling to see the devastation around us and we won't live a zealous life because we're just unwilling to see how bad things are. I just want to gloss over it. That's why many people turn to alcohol because they're tired of feeling sad. Have you done the same thing by being unwilling to be sad and unwilling to lament? This is all different. I want you to see this. This is all very different than asking what idols can you have, right? This, this is a little bit more nuanced than talking about idolatry. And this is all under the heading of how to pursue a sober mind. These things may not be an idol yet for you. But they are powerful enough in your mind and in your life to where they will derail you from having a sober mind. They make you flippant or overly anxious. They make you ignorant of the needs of others or overly concerned about your needs. They make you value things like humor and having a good time far above where they ought to be valued. And it's not necessarily because, because there's something sinful in them but rather because we let them come into our minds and make us lose control. 
And so we come to the first command. So we've received two mindsets that we need to have in order to live a life consistent with the return of Christ, and that is a mind prepared for action or a zealous mind, and then a sober mind. And now we're ready to receive the very first imperative of the letter. This is the first thing Paul, uh, Peter rather commands us to do in this letter. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, we can lose the connection between this first command and the two things that we've already been given with the mindsets. The point, of course, is that setting our hope where it ought to be is the goal of having a mind prepared for action and a sober mind. And I think we need to clarify this point because... There are other reasons a person may have a readied mind. There are other reasons that a person may have a sober mind. You can be serious and sober for all the wrong reasons. It might be political. Try to to win back our nation in some general sense. That has nothing to do with the return of Christ necessarily. I'm not saying it's a bad pursuit, but you can be sober and serious and zealous for all the wrong reasons. It's not under the the revelation of Jesus Christ, what is going to happen on that final day. It's not from faith, and therefore it's sin. It could be for church stuff. You can can have a religiosity and and a manner of consuming the Christian life that has nothing to do with the return of Christ. You can be very active in the church. This is a problem, especially in the South. Cultural Christians, we call them. Doing all the things, going through the motions with no real desire to please the Lord in view of his eventual return. You can have personal reasons to be readied and zealous and to have a sober mind. You can just know objectively that that's a better way to live. We see this a lot in American culture with the value of hustle. We have the entrepreneurial spirit that has been part of our culture since our founding and before. So You can live your life that way where you're just going after it. For what? To get ahead? Don't you know Jesus is coming back and, and you can't take anything with you? Other examples abound of ways to be a reasons that we can have a zealous mind and be sober for all the wrong reasons. Education would be one of them. It's very popular. If you ever tried to pursue a master's degree or a PhD, I have not done so. But even in, in getting the degree I have, it just took a lot of zeal and a lot of sober mind. But if that wasn't motivated out of a heart to please the Lord in view of His eventual return, to seek His glory between these two bookends, then it was worthless. If these are traps you've fallen into, into, then you are not serious or sober enough. That's the point. It's not that we can't pursue these things. It's not that a serious and sober mind don't help us do these things. But if that's the reason that you have a serious mind and a sober mind, you are not yet sober or serious enough. The great issue, what matters most, what is more precious than gold is where you set your hope. So that's the connection between these two. The reason we should have a mind prepared for action, a zealous mind and a sober mind, is so that we may set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The intense thing about this and the offense of the gospel at this point is that there is only one right answer for where you ought to set your hope. You may have faith or general belief in the propositional truth of what Jesus did on the cross or believe that he's a real person, but you yourself, friend, may have no real, essential, tangible hope in what he has promised he will do. I've said before, as, as we prepare to think about this, this hope, as we conclude with a focus on hope, I've said before that hope is at a premium in this life and that many people walk around without hope. But that's not strictly true. There is no such thing as a hopeless individual in this life. No such thing. In the most narrow sense. No, the problem... It's not that we lack hope. The problem is that we easily hope in something or things that will always disappoint. That's the problem. Everyone sets their hope somewhere. And the reason we walk around with this hopeless feeling is because it is not set fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything else decays and will not maintain the weight of you setting your hope on it. So it's simple. The logic is simple. Number one, everyone hopes in something. Number two, does that hope disappoint? And if the answer to the second question is yes then you will have a profound sense of hopelessness in your life. And it's because you're hoping in the wrong things. Only Christ in His second coming and His fulfilling of His promises can be the hope that will never disappoint. Everything else will give way and disappoint you. This is why it is called a living hope. All other hopes are dead. You see? So what are characteristics of this hope that that the believer is to have? We'll look at a few of them. He says, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Number one, it is a fixed hope. It does not say, or Peter does not say, your hope is on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, set your hope. That's the first imperative. It is a command. And it would be true for the believer that they, in some sense, set their hope on the Lord, or otherwise they wouldn't be a believer. But Peter knows too much about the human condition to just let that go on as an assumption. This is an amazing thing to ponder. I want you to see the the innovation, the clarity into, into our hearts that Peter has here. Christians, those who trust in the Lord Jesus, still yet need to believe, trust, and set their hope in Him. Brother and sister, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus today. You need to entrust yourself fully to Him today. Set your hope fully on Him. It is always faith leading to works. And primarily, I think, or or beginning, it is it is faith that generates this desire, this, this will to work hard of setting our hope away from the distractions and the counterfeit messiahs like life, liberty, property, pleasure to the real Jesus. 
That is the work He now has equipped you to do by His Spirit every day. Set your hope fully on Him. The hopelessness you may feel right now, brother or sister, the struggle to feel hope in your life generally from time to time is not a condition perhaps within you so much as it is the quality of where you have set your hope. It is a real act of the will to set your hope on the Lord. And it needs to be seen to every day and every hour. To take your hope off of the things that have distracted you and to place, them all, place all of those hopes onto Jesus Christ. This implies diligence and aggression and an always on the offensive, tenacity and insistence. Is that anything like you have experienced? Is that what you would call normal Christian living? When was the last time you decided, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the counterfeit hopes in my life. I'm going to root them out and set my hope squarely on Jesus Christ. Number two, it is an undivided hope. He says, set your hope fully. I'm so glad he gave us that word. Life with the side of Jesus will not work. No man can serve two masters, and no man can hope in multiple things. The wisdom of our age is diversification. I used to be in the financial industry. Modern portfolio theory is to diversify your assets into all different types of assets so that they will grow generally. And if one class of assets falls, the others will rise. Diversify, diversify, diversify. That's the wisdom of the age. But the wisdom of God, as it relates to the all-important issue of your hope, is that diversity is death. You want to kill your hope, then diversify your hope. To say it another way, if you have hope in Christ, but that hope only has shared custody of your heart and shared custody of your mind and shared custody of your hopes and dreams, then then you don't really have hope in the grace that will be yours, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He will have all of your heart or He will have none of it. And thanks be to God that he is at work now to help us give it all over to him. But this is so not, not so much a threat as much as it gives us a window into the way that hope itself works at all and how it stabilizes our soul. To use a football analogy, if you will permit me to do so, it is a tried and true statement that gets passed around and sports fans talk to say that if you have two quarterbacks, then you have no quarterbacks. If you don't have that one guy that you can set your hope in to go out there and win the game for you, if you've got two guys and you're like, well, we're not really sure which one gives us the better chance to win today. If there's not a clear favorite, then you really don't have a quarterback. And that's the point with hope. If you've got to diversify and you put some of your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ and some of it over here in your job or some of it over here in a relationship or some of it over here in a relationship status, then you don't really have any hope. You've just shown that your interests are divided. Hope 
by its very nature, just like love, demands to be exclusive. The reason our hope must be fully set on Christ's return is the logical implication of what will happen on that day. Just as I've said already, you're not taking anything with you. Your faith is more precious than gold, even though gold perishes. The only way that gold is going to perish is if this whole creation is going to be recreated. The only thing you're taking with you is the degree of hope that you have cultivated in your heart, setting it on the Lord Jesus in your life. That's it. It is also a Godward hope. A Godward hope. He says, the grace, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. These next two go together. The the Godward hope and an undeserved hope. The attitude, I want you to understand this. You should not be trying to cultivate hope in your heart. You can't do that. You can't pull yourself up and make you hope in make yourself hope in something and to increase hope. No, the attitude is that we are grasping onto what God will do. Hope arises as a byproduct, if you will, of clasping onto what He will do. These are His promises. The grace that will be brought to you. Who is doing the bringing? It is God Himself. He will do these things. And so as you believe in that, as you build your life around that, hope is produced. This is is the attitude that recognizes that anything good, anything that will happen in my life that is at all worthwhile is from the Lord Himself. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. He's going to do it. He will make it happen. It's also an undeserved hope. It says, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. The meaning of grace, of course, depends in a significant way on the idea of it being undeserved. That it's not merited. You didn't work to earn this grace. You didn't get it because you did the right things and went through all the steps and went through the the five-part process and submitted the right application and all that. It's all of grace from start to finish. So, to think about this statement... Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Think about it in this way. Set your hope fully on all the undeserved things that the Lord will do for you and your brothers and sisters when Christ returns. Or shorter, eagerly look forward to everything good from God which you don't deserve. Paul in Ephesians drills down on this idea so clearly that God being proven to be the all-gracious one, the one who cannot receive a gift from anyone, the one who is the ultimate gift giver, is part of the reason the universe exists. So on that day, what will be on display is the glory of His grace that it was all undeserved. You didn't get it because you were good. You got it because God was good towards you. All in grace. 
John says it this way in John 1.16, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. One of the reasons I think we lack hope and we lack clarity in our lives, setting our hope fully on the grace that we be brought to us of the revelation of Jesus Christ, is that we usually don't walk around with a category of grace, especially not towards others. In our relationships with others, it's very quid pro quo. It's very hard to earn back trust. It's very hard to win people over. And in some sense, that's explicable. God's all-knowing. God's all-powerful. And so he's, in some ways, more equipped to show grace. But we're to show grace just as he does. We're to be forgiving just as he does. We're to be wise, but filled with grace. It is also a future hope. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you, that will be brought to you. It has not yet been brought to you. It is a future hope. We are under the reign of grace, to be sure. But yet we wait for that final bringing of all the grace of God to us. On the last day. Maybe the reason your Christian hope may feel not quite sturdy enough for you right now to sustain your soul. Maybe that you're looking to present realities. Maybe you're looking to your present knowledge of the Lord. Maybe you're looking to your present degree of sanctification. Maybe you're even looking to your present grasp of His promises. But no, brothers and sisters, your hope is to be set fully on the grace that will be brought to you. It is coming. It is not here fully yet. Believe that God has destined to do much more for you than He has already done. If you don't believe that and know that and treasure that, again, I just don't know how you function. And your hope probably isn't living My goodness, brothers, if this is it, if this is all there is, even with all the glory that we would acknowledge about what the Christian life is, then there is not much reason for hope. Maybe glib happiness, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, but not sustaining hope. The real motherload of grace, if you will, is still further down the line at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is coming. It is not here. It is not now. But it is coming. And the time is short. And lastly, it is an eschatological hope. There's a big word for of or relating to the last things. Eschatological. This is not redundant with the idea of it being a future hope. Understand that there is a place and a time and a situation where hope ceases. That's the point of hope, is it not? For hope, not to put you to shame, it has to go through a metamorphosis to where it is no longer hope, but reality, that, that you then have the things that you hope for. So our hope is eschatological in the sense that it's going to stop at some point. There will be a day when you won't need any hope because it will be realized. From 2 Peter verse 3, uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, beginning in verse 8. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that to the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise to you. Not wishing that, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? You must live your life between those two bookends. You must set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What kind of life makes sense then in light of these grand realities? Well, it starts with a mind prepared for action and a sober mind, an unwillingness to let anything creep in and take up residence and take control. And... It involves setting your hope on what will happen when he brings it all to pass. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great and precious promises. May we be a people found to be diligent at your return. May we be the faithful servant whom the master finds so doing when he comes. May we not overlook the beauty of this hope. For fear of seeming out of touch, for fear of seeming uncool, for fear of seeming like a madman in the wilderness proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. I pray for especially the young people in this room. Our world and sometimes the way that we raise them teaches them that it's okay to diversify their hope and to focus on so many other things. I pray that you would, through us, rescue them from that vain way of life. And I pray for us, who are older and know better, that we would set an example for them. Give us all this readiness, this zeal in our minds that we need. Give us sobriety. Help us sober up from the things that we've let intoxicate us and rob our self-control. Do this all for the sake of the name of your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.